Our panel of break-fix petrolheads are back for another rousing what-should-I-buy debate. Using unique shopping criteria, they are challenged to find our first-time collector the best vehicle that will make their friends go, where do you get that? Or what the hell is wrong with you? At the next Cars and Coffee. Good day, chaps. I'm your host, Bruce, and with me, as always, is my best mate, Nigel. Hello. And on this episode of Fish and Chips, we'll be discussing British motors. Tonight, we have with us a panel of lads who have gobs of experience with small, quirky, poorly wired cars where convertibles run rampant and the weather is quite contrary. Gracing the stage with us tonight, we've got Steve Wade, we've got Al Benton Alcina, Hazmat, Mountain Man Dan, and Steve's brother, John. Welcome, everybody. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. This is a Piccadilly line service. Now, before we go on about who built who, I have to say, when you look at German cars, they are precise, albeit sterile and utilitarian. The Japanese are perfectionists of other people's ideas, and the Italians have a flair for the dramatic and prefer form over function. But our British friends, they always seem to embrace the send it ideology. The cars don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be good. Heck, they don't even have to be built in the factory, most of them being built in an allotment shed. But they are amazing things, aren't they? So how about we get into it? Why British cars? Well, I used to live there. It's kind of no bloody choice. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was always odd to see British cars that were convertibles, considering it rained so much in the UK. Well, not only that, and you, I... you reckon, right? In a country where it pisses down the rain three days a week, yeah? And they make a lot of convertibles, and they have been since these things were horseless carriages, that they could make a top today in the 21st century that does not actually leak. Apparently that is not in the British uh, skill set. Well, no, I, I think they're trying to uphold tradition. We're fairly yeah. convinced that they would build the cars, water test them, and if they didn't leak, they had to poke holes. The point, of course, is if it's leaking, you've now got an excuse for the bugger rusting underneath you. <laughs> well, that's the other point, is every British car I've ever owned is soluble. So, you know, it's a recycle job. That's what it is. And what happens is people that own them just stop that recycle thing going on because we fix them and we drive them and we complain about them. But what's supposed to happen is you make it, it's crap, it leaks, it fills the water, it rusts, you go buy another one. The whole idea of the economy. What you're saying is people buy British cars just for the jokes. Oh, yeah. Not a and, and the for, the, for the wonderful <laughs> electrics, mate. <laughs> the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they buy them because of the superb electronic skills of, <laughs> of the British who invented a connector, which is amazing piece of technology, a tiny connector where two pieces of metal touch and still do not pass any current. It's an incredible oh, yeah. piece of work. Well, what was it, the Jensen Healy that had the main chassis ground in the trunk? At the bottom yep. of the spare tire well. It's a submarine thing. Yeah, that's him. Is it because yeah. everything's an afterthought? Like they go into it saying, You guys silly? I'm still going to send it. I'm going to build a car, but they forgot about half of the things they really need to take care of? No, you see, yeah, Eric, not- you're assuming that there was thought to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because when I lived there, it was a common thing. As soon as everybody got off work, they went to the pub. So I'm assuming that that's where most of the design ideas came and it got jotted down on the map. Uh-huh. Not so much designed as hobbled together with a, a lot of alcohol, you know, 
that kind of stuff. You know, well, let's see if this works. Well, that piece of crap over there is over here. If that works, fine. We'll make 50 of them. If not, we'll just wreck it and make another one. It's not, Steve. It's, hey, look, if that works, fine. We'll make 50 of them. If it doesn't work, fine. We'll make 200,000 of the buggers. <laughs> you guys are on to something. And, and Matt turned me on many years ago to, you know, the, the backstory of a lot of car builders, especially Colin Chapman. And I've read his biography. And one of the things he was famous for, because they, they considered him a madman, is he would jot down designs on a napkin and then go into the shed and tell the, the boys from Cosworth, go build this. And that was the end of the story. There wasn't, there really wasn't a whole lot of thought in it. And I guess that, that theme is throughout all the different manufacturers. Uh, yeah, what's your point well, again? Because <laughs> I don't have one. But I, 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 I've, yet, but, I've yet to see a problem with this. But, other than we completely and utterly cocked it up for 212 years. Other than that, it's great. Well, if you look at the original sketches of Insignosis of the, of the Mini, they are literally on a napkin. I mean, they're they literally, are. you know, he, he put a few ideas down. He goes, yeah, that looks all right. Go out in the factory, bang, bang, few sheets of metal, weld it together, put an engine in it. Well, eventually, and away you go. I mean, it, yeah. a lot of the ideas were on the fly, right? But that's also true the, of a lot of custom cars, right? So... Engine is probably a bit flaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I stopped at that bit because that's a bit, you know, engine as opposed to complete waste of aluminum and, you know, petrol. Yeah, that's more like Yeah, we, yeah it'd, be, it'd be a good door stop, but it doesn't produce enough power to keep the door open, you see. Original Mini was 35 horsepower, mate. That, that was lethal at that time. And they went to the 1275, the big block, baby. Yeah, 65 horsepower. God help us, I've got kids and a wife. Somebody stop me. Is there such thing in the vintage era of British cars, is there really such thing as a reliable British car? What a stupid bloody question. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. So does the same reign true for the higher end vehicles? Let's say if we start with the Jags. <laughs> higher end, okay. Moving to the Astons, moving to the Bentleys, moving to the old Rolls Royces, when they were still owned and built in the UK, is that still true even back then where they were just kind of cobbled together? Or was there a level of excellence that they were trying to achieve that was a cut above, let's say, Boston? It was world-class cobblers, that stuff. World-class cobblers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're not talking second-rate bods here. We are talking upper-crust rubbish. If you're going to go, go big, go expensive, and we still go cobblers. No, they were just as bad. Surprisingly, uh, our brother, our older brother, owns a Rolls-Royce. Uh, yeah, no, it's not a good thing. <laughs> the reason only rich people own them. Yeah, because they can afford the mechanic. That's right. You know, maintenance? Oh, my God. I hate, to, you know, I hate to think because the production numbers are so small, and depending on what the part is, it might be a, a standard off-the-shelf part for General Motors or something like that because it used a Turbo 400 transmission with an iron case, so apparently the transmission was quite a hefty piece. But the, the same holds true for German cars, that for years and years and years, people said, I love my Mercedes. You know, it'll run forever as long as you spend $1,000 a year to maintain it. And, you know, I, I can't imagine Rolls-Royce is any different, except that they used things like mineral oil brake system. Or was it was it mineral oil for the suspension. They did, they did a bunch of things that were very British because 
they didn't follow anybody else's standard for whatever reason, and therefore it made acquiring the part to keep running more difficult. I just love the fact that we could use the term British as an adjective. You know, instead of words like stupid or ill-conceived or inoperable, you know, those kinds of words you could use as well, just as easy, right? I was going to say, outside of having been born there, like you and Steve, Dan was stationed in the UK. Al is new to the British car world, and we'll get to that in a minute. And then there's Matt who, as I mentioned earlier, before we started the episode, I tried to think back of all the British cars that Matt has owned over the years, at least since I've known him. And, you know, he always told me, I'm not really into British cars. And I think I tallied up somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 of them. No, 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 not British cars. (laughs) But I mean, if you go back to the, the MGA and the B and the multiple Land Rovers, and the Jag with the 350, and the Lotus. I mean, it adds up pretty quick. There's a lot of them in there. So I'm wondering, between Matt and Al, how did you guys get into British cars? Mine was easy, right? So you guys know that I got rid of the Porsche, and I really needed something to drive, right? And I had gas on my chest, and and part of this came out in, in a previous podcast. But when I started looking at the cars, I looked at three or four, right? I looked at the Audi uh, RS5. I looked at the the new 2020 Corvette. And I was looking at, of course, the Jag is where I ended up, but I also was looking at the the LC500 Lexus. Was it a couple years ago when the F-Type was at the DC Auto Show? And uh, Jaguar has been very fortunate that their designers seem to come up with some really, really good looking cars. And unlike the stuff that you see in most car parks today, it actually looks different. You know, can, can, I, can I say uh, something about that? When I first looked at that uh, Jag F-Type, it was reminiscent to me of the 1975-ish Z car, right? That yeah. front end yeah. style. When I looked at I didn't look at the rear. I'm just talking about the front end. And from the side view was Z car all, way, all, all day. So that was part of the lore for me, right? Because it looked reminiscent to something that I had before. At the end of it, when I looked at styling, the Corvette just was disappointing. Only because it wasn't out. I got tired of all the hype, looking at stuff on video. I really want to touch, right? I want to get in the car, drive it. And even though I bought the Jag online, I went to the dealership and test drove it. Al, what is it? So I've got a Jaguar F-Type, uh, 2017. Oh, oh, oh. Right. oh okay. So you got, you got a proper one. Okay. That's not and, one of those old ones. That's, yeah, that's no, 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 no. This thing is, and it's it's gorgeous, right? It's sexy. Yeah, it's, in, it's Indian too, just so we know. You know yeah, we, we <laughs> <laughs> Right. How do you like yeah, that this, Tata? And I say the car is sexy. It's, it's, got a, it's got a rear like a woman with great hips, right? <laughs> Um, so and, true. And, and so those, those right. aren't British hips. <laughs> I don't know about that. I've never seen British hips. So, so when I saw the car and I looked at price, now I've always heard all the stories about British cars, right? How they are infamous for dying. You have all kinds of electrical, you know, transmission, all kinds of issues. And to date, I haven't had any, right? Now, I would say I've only had the car since January, but the car has been perfect. There, there are some wonky things about it, but it runs. It's a marvel. 
It's got a, a eight-speed transmission. Paddles want to fly, and I tell you that it flies. At some point, Eric, I, I said this that you can go out and you're gonna you can do a proper test drive and story on the car. I'll let you take it and do your thing and see what you think of it. But the car itself, leaving Porsche, I just made a turn and that's where I ended up. I'm not unhappy with it. I would tell you that from a fit, I'm not a big guy, but the car is meant to me. I could be a little bit shorter and fit perfectly, <laughs> right? I find that it's a little tight. That's good for what I use the car for, but uh, again, there's no extra space, right? I would say that I don't know how far I would drive the car from a distance perspective. You know, maybe I drive nine hours, right? I'd have to really have a lot of coffee and be in a different face. But again, I, I will say that I love the car. So, Al, with the new Corvettes getting such a bad rap thus far, do you think buying the Jag was dodging a bullet? You know what? I would probably prefer to do that assessment myself versus allowing somebody else to, right? Because each car that you have is going to have a different, depending on where it comes in off the line, it may be different for you. What is normal for everyone, the vast majority of people may have a bad rap, but you may enjoy the hell out of it, right? From zero to 60, <laughs> right? <laughs> and taking the twisties, it might be perfect, right? And for what I'm going to drive the car for, look, I'm not going to take it to the track. I'm just going to cruise around town. It might be perfect. But, you know, there's some of the things that I – I have not heard all the issues, so that's a little bit too presumptuous for me to say that it would be okay, but without knowing, again, I, I would, though, say that I would take that sort of criticism that people have into consideration when buying, but I would still prefer to take it out, take it for a test drive, and really kind of uh, kick the tire, so to speak. Gotcha. Can I tell a story about XFs? Absolutely. Okay, so, yeah, we never tell stories. So John and I, some years ago, at the invite of um, Jaguar, actually went to Laguna Seca in California. Can you say that uh, again? Can you they, say that again, Steve? I just like the way you guys say that. Jaguar, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Jag, so anyway, so they invited us because they thought we had money to spend with those guys, which turned out not to be true. But that's not being or there. So we go to Laguna Seca, and they let us drive every type of Jag they had there. And they, they were some fabulous cars. So, Al, I have driven the S-Series at Laguna Seca, and I can tell you it kicks freaking ass. It is a really cool car. You should take it to the track. Don't let Eric drive it because, you know, I, I get that point. But certainly take it around. It's great. It handles fantastic. You'll love what the right pedal does. It's, it is a really – and it looks really cool. Okay, end of story. <laughs> this is Max Hedrum. And what you're about to witness is one of the most sinister-sounding intros to a trailer to one of the greatest epics ever produced in the history of t t television. And there's more. <laughs> I'm going to add to it, though. We drove all three of the F-types, by the way. There's the low-power 6, the mid-power 6, and the 8. And the mid-power 6 was by far the best of the three. By far. Now, yeah. I've got a claim to fame on that. So I'm probably the only one in this group, I would think, who has passed Roberto Guerrero on a racetrack. So Roberto Guerrero was one of the instructors in the Jag school that we were in. And uh, we got to monkey about with him a little bit. And um, as you guys well know, a lot of people who go on a track really don't want to go fast. They want to go back to some liquid cooler deal 
and be able to tell their friends that they went on the track in a Jaguar. Well, that's not in the nature of the people on this conversation, is it? <laughs> so Roberto went out with a, um, with a young lady in uh, one of the Jags who really didn't think that a track was an appropriate place to flaunt speed limits. So she was pooling around at about 60 miles an hour, which I was not. And I'd spoken to Roberto Guerrero several times that day. And I went roaring past him and just looked over at him. And this expression of pure, utter horror is on his face. Like, why am I on a track doing this? Help me, help me. So our claim to fame is that we were taught on a track, Laguna Seca, in a Jaguar F-Type by Roberto Guerrero. Apparently it must be Lucas slapped up over at the Wade household. <laughs> Passes a pass at the end of the day, isn't that how it works? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? What engines in your one? So I, I, I went with the balance, so I got the V6 supercharged. Yeah, that's the best that's one. The boat I have, mate. Definitely. That was the fastest. That's V8 too much for that car. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and so all the reports that I, I, I heard prior to saying, that, yeah, you can have it, but it was like, why, right? You want to have kind of a balance between motor, yep. performance, right. and, and handling. So well, yeah, the, the weight distribution is so much better. So when we drove the eights going onto the straight at Laguna Seca at turn 11, every time, and I couldn't stop it, I come onto that straight sideways every single time with the eight-cylinder. With a six, it would go round that corner like it was on a rail and shoot straight down the track. It was a fantastic car. Agreed. Well done. Good choice. Sorry. Interrupted again, didn't I? So going back, and we'll circle back to Mountain Man Dan here in a minute. So what's Matt's excuse? Well, growing up, I had a good friend who is the father of one of my high school friends who had Jags. He had a XJ12L with a small block. And then he bought a 78 XJS with the V12, hated the V12, and put a small block in it. And his brother had a uh, coupe with a small block. And I really liked the cars. I mean, they compared to German cars, you're right. German cars are very sterile. Japanese cars are bland. They're very sterile, but they're very functional. British cars are, are very are, are like a club. You, know, you walk inside, it's got a lot of wood, it's got a lot of leather. It just It's, it's a very clubby feel. So I, I ended up with the XJ6L because it had a small block Chevy in it. And uh, I went to take something out of it. And the number of tiny, tiny screws holding the dashboard together were phenomenal. And it reminded me that whoever built this car was probably a cabinet maker before they were a coach builder. So I had another good friend, Dan. Dan Rao, yeah. <clears throat> he was on Truck Night in America. And he's, he's had Land Rovers for decades. Found a 72 Series 2, and it was cheap enough. I figured I'd bring it to this side of the country, and if it was junk, I'd sell it. As it was, uh, it ran. Uh, the, the idiots who had it couldn't figure out how to start a car with a carburetor or points. And, you know, the beauty to that car, the beauty to the MG, MGs, plural, is the simplicity. The Land Rover showed up. It had a, an adjustable wrench in the tool chest. And I, I laughed. I said, hey, here's half the toolkit. Because between an adjustable spanner and a screwdriver, if you can't take a Land Rover apart, you should just give up. <laughs> in the, uh, well, and, and the neatest thing about the Land Rovers was, even into the 70s, it had a manual priming fuel pump and a crank to start it. That was one of the best party tricks ever. You know, watch this shit. You crank it and you start right up. That was pretty cool. 
Now, I will say it was disconcerting riding in that, that Landy because you sat on top of the gas tank. So, you know, <laughs> but I understand why they built it that way. Well, but you want to talk about stupid simple. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, I mean, stupid simple and, and tough as nails. I mean, you know, you, you, see, the, you see them on the, on the TV shows, you know, Born Free and whatnot. They beat the hell out of them. They don't care. You know, now I've got that 2000 disco and, you know, there, there are all the horror stories about Land Rovers being unreliable and whatnot. I mean, the, the, the disco is a very comfortable, very competent off-road vehicle. The new ones are as well, but the problem I have with all the new ones is they've become so glitzy that you don't want to take them off-road, not like not like the old series. You know, the old series, right. you, get it, you get it muddy, you just take the roof off and take the garden hose to it. I had an original Mini for a very short period of time. A buddy of mine had a, had a, a new. Remember, thing. he didn't have any British. He doesn't have hasn't had that many British cars. No, no British cars. No, not at all. <laughs> so it, it always well, and, and a buddy of mine has a, a modern mini, and we were at an autocross. The Mercedes Benz Club at the time used the three foot tall cones, and in in a, in a real mini, they they look like a forest. But I don't think people who own new minis realize how small a mini really is. I, I mean, think the only car smaller than a mini is the Fiat Five Hundred. Well, and, and as I always used to say, if you cut the roof off of a new Mini and took the guts out, you put the new Mini inside, put the roof back on, never know it was there. Oh, yeah, put the old yeah. Mini inside. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's two reasons to dry clean a Mini. One is if you wet wash it, it rusts away. And the other is it can't shrink anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. For the classic Mini, I can still say that I own half of one. And that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't mean that I'm a co-owner. I actually own a physical half of a Mini because when uh, I was over there as a civilian, I got to where I was buying, rebuilding, you know, buying ones that were wrecked and things like that. And one that I bought that had been rolled had really good chassis to it. So I took that out of one that the chassis was messed up with. And with the military to bring things back, I was able to cut the back half of it because I intended to eventually make it into a trailer to pull behind the one I was planning to ship here. Because as you know, there's not much luggage space in them. Yeah. So I was going to make a little pull-behind trailer of the back half of a Mini for behind the other Mini. And unfortunately, things I screwed up on one didn't get shipped. But I did manage to put the back half of the Mini in with my household goods, and it got shipped over here. So I still do have that. Oh, that's a good story. I like that. If you ever want the experience of driving a Mini-sized car that will outhandle and outaccelerate a Mini very well, go get a Lotus Elan from the 1960s. Those things... Oh, yeah. Devastating little cars. The car that the Miata is based on. Yeah, they were to the point where they were almost scary. They were unbelievably fast. Very few cars keep up with those. They're 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 way more complicated than the seven, but at the same time they're not because there's nothing to be complicated. They're actually not very more much more complicated than the seven at all. Bigger tubes. Bigger tubes. Yeah, you know, and, and my, my Lotus is the definition of simplistic. I mean, it's uh, it's one of the last factory built sevens, but that's another car that you know an adjustable wrench and a screwdriver, and you can take that thing apart and have it in pieces. And you know the the real irony is you're talking about uh, what was it 35 horsepower in the original Mini. My Lotus has the Austin Healey Sprite motor with a Weber, and I, I don't know the actual power figure, but in stock trim with the SUs. It was a whopping 43 horsepower, but the car weighs 986 pounds. And uh, I had it out on the road the other day for the first time, and it'll go 60 miles an hour, which is 
as I said, 43 horsepower. Never felt so furious in your life. I mean, they're interesting cars. You know, they, they're weird. But, you know, if you think about it, so are German cars. Germans tend to over-engineer the hell out of them. And as a result, they overcomplicate it, where the Brits tended to not overcomplicate, but they tended to engineer really bad things and then stick with them forever. <laughs> Maybe the adjective we should use is charming. Is that a good one to summarize British cars? And British people, I might add. <laughs> I just, I just love the fact that, I mean, the, the way to fix a British car and Matt's, you know, list of cars there is just put a small black Chevy in it, and then they're all good. Well, there is a website <laughs> jagsthatrun.com, and that is the solution. It's LS Swap the world, right? So, Dan, why don't you tell us about how you fell into British cars and what you had while you were stationed overseas? All right, so my endeavor into British cars happened by, uh, I would say, by force because the uh, military decided to ship me over to England, which it was a good time. I spent in total about five years over there, three years of it in the military, and went back for close to two as a civilian. And for many Americans, the classic minis are a cult thing, and there's a huge cult following of the cars. And some of my British friends I had over there would get offended when I told them that I didn't see anything special about them. In my eyes, they were the British Volkswagen bug because they were so simplistically made, made for everybody to use. Blasphemer. And, <laughs> and so that was my initial view of them. And I, like I'd never owned one or anything. And then by chance, I bought my first one because a guy had overheated the engine and had fried the rings. I bought it. It already had a lot of nice work done to the body. It had the body kit on it, you know, upgraded interior stuff, had 12-inch wheels on it. And I got it for a steal. I bought it, replaced the engine, upgraded it from 1100. I put a 1275 in it. And Big block. It was, Let me tell you, Dan, if you had a 1275 with 12-inch wheels, you were the man. That was a car, right? So that, that was that's a screamer. That is a good Mini. If it, particularly if it's got a Cooper upgrade to it yeah you were you were seen as the bee's knees mate <laughs> it was funny because one of the guys that uh i was stationed with owned one and he was like one of the diehard many guys and he was telling me he's like oh you can't do over like 80 mile an hour and i'm like really i was like i had mine up to 100 and i was yeah. like it was vibrating like crazy and the engine was screaming but i've had it up to 100 and i'm yeah, sure that a plus engine will go forever yeah yep yeah be good was that kilometers or miles an hour, Dan? Miles an hour. <laughs> that was downhill off a cliff. And, and you yeah. definitely don't want a big bug to come out in front of you because uh, <laughs> it'll destroy the windshield real quick. <laughs> After driving it, then I started to understand the allure behind the Mini. And I really loved driving it because it was basically like driving a go-kart on the road. And I wound up owning like six or seven of them over the years. I really loved them, but then while I was there, I mentioned in a previous conversation we'd had, like the Hillman Super Amp that a buddy of mine had, I would have loved to have bought. I don't know why. It, it was not a very attractive car, but something about it. I am I liked it. <laughs> of course. And it was, I don't know why. It, it was a car that not many people liked, but something about it I really liked. And I just thought it was a really cool car. And, and unfortunately, I didn't buy it, although I probably should have because I would have brought it back to the States with me. But I was around a lot of the other British cars, like the Jaguars, and I was, as has been already mentioned, 
putting a 350 in, it's the best solution to a lot of the problems with the old. And if I recall correctly, I think when I first met Matt, Eric, you were trying to talk me into buying the Jag off of him that already had the 350 in it. But I chose not to. So that was my endeavor into British cars. And the Lucas electronics are a nightmare. That's, that's one thing that's across the board. With them. I remember the pictures of Patty Hopkirk jumping those things in rallies. You know, that, those, those cars were awesome to me. Yeah, you know? and there's a really good video that came out not long ago from, I think it was last year's Goodwood, and I'll probably post it in the show notes to go with this episode, where there's a Mini, I forget who the driver is, but he's chasing a fully prepared Mini, and he's chasing an Alpha GTA, and is probably some of the yeah. best racing you've ever seen. It's the best nine minutes you'll spend in front of the computer, so I'll make sure to post that along with this episode. But Steve, you said you had a story, and uh, but continue. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's just about filming it. Um, because uh, I, I don't know if you listened to the last podcast, but anyway, uh, the first cars I ever owned in England were actually Fords. So I had a Ford Capri 1.6 liter, 2.0 liter, which were company lease cars, right? So I didn't pay for them, so I don't care. But anyway, so when I left the company, I didn't have a car. So the first car I ever bought for myself was a Hillman Super M. And I loved that car. That car was just, it was phenomenal, except one day it stopped working. And for the life of me, I could not figure out what was wrong. I took the carburetors off, put them back on it. And eventually, for two weeks, I was working on this thing. So I go and get this buddy of mine. And I said, look, can you come and look at this car? Put the the key thing. Back up, mate. <laughs> I said, can, can you come and see what's wrong with the car? So he said, sure. You know, he'd, been, he'd worked on cars a bit. So we get it out of the garage, put it in. And he, he looks at it, fiddle farts around with it. And he says, Steve, it's got no petrol in it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you had to put petrol in. They never run out of petrol. I mean, you know, they just, but anyway, that was what the problem was. I had no petrol. You know, it's funny that Dan mentions the Super M. I'm a fan of the Fiat 850, the 850 Coupe especially. So to, it, they're all kind of the same to me, I guess, at the end of the day. And they're all equally quirky because none of the, you know, Magnetti Morelli stuff worked either, just much like the Lucas electronics didn't work back then either. But Steve, you're very invested in the British car world, especially with your classic Mini, and you were the head of one of the Mini clubs here in the DMV. What's that like? What's that community like that people may not be familiar with? Well, first of every British club I've ever been associated with had, had a support group. So we had, you know, like psychiatrists on, on call, you know, for those days when you couldn't fix the frigging things or whatever. Now, it's just like this group. I mean, this is a very typical, you love the car, but you hate the car. You know, there's a masochistic love affair going on with the thing the whole time. You, you know that it, if it runs, that was, you know, you just made the lottery, right? Because if it doesn't run, that's what's supposed to happen. So if you get it to start, you can drive it about a bit. You feel proud of it because you're getting this mechanical beast to do whatever you want with it. Um, so there's it, it, just the, it's the, it is the quirkiness. It is the charm. We use that. It, it, it is the participant. You cannot just, you know, it's not a Mac car, right? You've got to be vested in the car. If you own a British car, no matter what it is, either you've got a very good mechanic who will take all your money and fix it for you every now and again, or you, and you know, the car, it's part of your family. It's part of you. It's part of your character and everybody that owns British cars, has that trait about them. Some a little bit, some to obsession. I would say the one thing that I've seen through everybody that has a similar problem to me in British cars. 
So I have to ask Steve, with your classic mini, do you carry a wire brush around in the boot? Because with mine I did, yep. because like clockwork, every like month and a half, two months, I'd have to pull the, pull the ground cable off, wire brush it, and then bolt mm -hmm. it back on for it to start. Because if not, it would act like the starter was going bad. Yeah, because the connectors that went on the battery are made of lead. So lead expands and contracts. So what happens over time is it expands and contracts. It creates corrosion. So it doesn't make a connection anymore. So you have yeah. to take it off and do the wire brushy thing and then put it back on again, hit it with a hammer, curse at it a few times, and then it'll start. Of course, if you haven't flattened the bleeding battery, which happens fairly often too. So, yeah, and that Mini does exactly that. I have to keep a charger on the battery, not on the terminals. If I keep the charger on the terminals, it keeps the lights on in the car. It doesn't charge the battery at all because it's not connected to the damn battery. Uh, right, so you have, to, you have to put it on the battery terminal. Oh, so. And yet his beer is still warm after all that. You know? <laughs> yes, but, but his driveway will never rust. <laughs> it's coated in a thin thin layer of oil all the way down. Yeah. Uh, you why the British drink warm beer, right? Oh, yeah. Lucas Refrigerators, yes. My aunt <laughs> came up this weekend to visit for the first time. She's in her 80s, and he's in his 90s. My aunt walked into my garage and went, oh, my God, what is that on the floor? I said, oil, huge patch. I said, I have British cars. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I think we told this joke before, Matt, but, you know, if a British car isn't leaking, there's one reason or one reason only for it. It's empty. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Well, Matt's the one that always yeah. told me never buy a Jag with low mileage because it means it never ran. <laughs> but on that, Steve, I think you touched on something really important with the UK, Britain, Scotland, Ireland, et cetera, being island nations, being very small, there is an, an exorbitant amount of petrol heads. Like you said, there's an obsession with cars. There's an obsession with motor racing. And when you look at the geography of the UK, it's not very big. And it's just amazing. Where does that come from? The whole country is cheap. That's what it is. They won't go and hire a mechanic, right? So why go and give somebody else, you know, a few pounds, a few quid to do their job where you can spend twice as much on tools and parts and do it yourself? But to be honest with you, it, it is a matter of necessity to some degree, right? Because standard living in the United Kingdom, at least back, you know, some time ago, as much as it is here. So there's definitely an affordability thing about it. But the other point is that, you know, the type of cars, because they were small, and Matt hit it on the head, they're simple. They really are simple. I mean, I can take the motor out of that, you know, 1984 Mini I just showed you, in two hours. Easy. Drop it out, put it on the horse. Easy. So they are made to be worked on. They're not necessarily easy to work on because the other thing is everything's packed in so tight because they're so small. And it gives you a good self-satisfaction, right? I mean, when you fix the thing and you turn the key and the thing starts and you drive it, you're really proud of yourself. You know, it's absolutely great. And you get a kick from it. So there's that element to it. But they are really, particularly the older ones, not so much the newer ones anymore, of course, but the older ones definitely lend themselves to the owner being a, a good part of the mechanic. Once they started putting, you know, more complicated computers in them and you needed more expensive electronic tooling, to tune them and yeah, that takes it out of the hands of your average Joe. So, you know, that's not so much anymore, but you know, they are simple to work on. There's no two ways about it. It's much simpler than that. We're from a little island surrounded by water, completely isolated from Europe. We just didn't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
and it doesn't help that the UK is taxed to death. It doesn't matter what it is, you get taxed on it to horrendous amounts. Yeah. And I think a lot of yep. that, especially import stuff, I noticed while I was there, like anything that's imported, is it abundantly more expensive than something locally? So I think a lot of those yep. guys are building things in their sheds and stuff. A lot of those designs, they're taking into mind the fact that okay, I can't just go down the shop and get something that you know from some other country. So they build the stuff based off what they know they have access to. And unfortunately, some of the stuff isn't the greatest availability to build with. So those yeah. hodgepodge designs get built off of what's available. And it's rather ingenuitive when you think about it. Well, there's a huge amount of ingenuity. The, the book that Eric was alluding to is Colin Chapman, The Man and His Machines. You know, one of the things they talk about is when Colin Chapman started building cars. He built the frames for, I can't, was it the seven? I can't remember what it was. He would build the frames and his frame jig was a, a, a box spring for a bed. And they said they went, when he laid out all the tubes, he said he had to be extra careful because as soon as he welded one set of tubes together, it was already stronger than that bed frame. But that's what he had for a jig. That's how he made his cars. Mm-hmm. You know, and literally, I mean, Eric knows the history a little better than I do, but Literally, it started in a in, in somebody's tool shed. By the time my Lotus was built, I think they had a warehouse, and, and immediately thereafter, they moved into a factory. Yeah, so your seven was built in kind of that middle period in what they called the chestnut factory, which was several sheds next to each other <laughs> instead of the original. No, 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 no. It's a town called Chesnut. Oh, is it? Oh, sorry. It's yeah. spelled chestnut. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, chestnut. My apologies. I, I do, do yeah. not wish to offend. But yes, it's pretty cool because when you look at Matt's car, you realize it is one of the probably last cars to come out of that facility. The The nameplate and the VIN is all hand etched. It's His is actually number 888 off the assembly line, you know, stuff like that. It's pretty cool to have a piece of history like that. Well, and then obviously when they moved to the airport, I can't remember the name of the town right now where the where Lotus has been forever now, you know, it, it's all very different than it was back then when the cars were still hand built. Well, and you know, and, and what's really interesting about them is that they were hand built, you know, you, you don't realize how it's a go-kart. Mm-hmm. I have to explain to people who, you know, I meet people and tell them I have a Lotus. They say, well, what do you mean? They say, you see this desk? The desk is a little bigger. <laughs> and, and honestly, and I've seen this with some other cars. I've seen it with some some MGs and, and some other British cars that I've, I've gotten close to, where you kind of look at it and go, man, what were they thinking? But also, I mean, the 7 especially, you're like, is this safe? <laughs> It's, it's almost a kit car in comparison to a lot of the other British cars that are out there. Well, it is a kit car. But yeah. remember what I said about that car. You don't ever have to worry about being injured in a crash. You're going to simply die. Uh, yeah, that yeah. is that is a true statement if there ever was one. But since we're talking about motorsport and we're talking about the British Isles, several of you have been over there before. Have you had the opportunity to go to any of the racetracks? Actually, I actually went to the, uh, let me think, 50th anniversary celebration of the Mini at Silverstone. But I never drove the track. I just visited and looked at thousands of uh, Minis and things like that. But I've never driven on track in England myself or in Europe, for that matter. Now, you guys had plans to go over there, correct? This year, but I think COVID messed that up. Uh, Yeah, you know, yes, but they didn't solidify. Maybe next year, maybe the year after. We've got to get over there and do, you know, 
drive Goodwood, perhaps, or Silverstone would be cool. You know, you just got to do that before we die, I think. It'll have to be a treat track for us. Yeah, Brad and I have this fantasy about driving a Brands Hatch. It, it's got to happen. I got to find a way to make it happen. <laughs> I, I, I just, I'd love to attend Goodwood. I love watching it on Absolutely. So yeah. I never made it on track while I was over there, but I did actually make it. I can't remember the name of it. It was a smaller track, a little bit north of base that I used to go up to because on uh, the weekends they would have motorcycle races there. So I would go up there and watch the guys because like, the GT style races are it's a lot more chaotic than the car races. So I go watch that, and then other it was they'd use a small section of the track at other times where they would actually race RC cars on it. It was a small section they would use for oh, RC cars. Which was interesting, but the only tracks I made on over there were motocross tracks. Oh wow! Where were you stationed, Dan? I was at uh, RAF Mildenhall. Yeah, and I did for two years. Yeah, Snedderton. From about thirty miles from there. Yep. Very oh, cool. Small world. Exactly right. Well, it's a small small island. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was funny though because uh, Steve was talking about the Ford Capris, which while being somewhat German, and I, uh, I actually had a 76 2.8 Gia. My dad had a 75 and shit brown. I mean, there's no other way to explain it. <laughs> I was, well, mine was a really early one because it was white. The headlight and windshield wiper switches were incorporated at the bottom of the dash. Most cars, you know, they have a stock to operate the wipers and whatnot. Mine were actually buttons on the bottom of the dash. Those were fun little cars. The uh, the biggest problem with the 2.8 was they didn't know how to federalize the darn things. They had this stupid sort of an emissions plate underneath the carburetor. Accelerator cable came out of the firewall, went down the length of the motor, and made a 180-degree turn and pulled the throttle linkage from the front of the car. And as a result, because the cable would bind with age, it was literally like an on-off switch. We figured that out at the, towards the end of my ownership. And I could finally drive it in the parking lot without stalling it or smoking the tires. So a couple of funny things about the Capri, since you brought it up. And, and I know Steve did in the last episode that he was on. So my dad used to tell me, first, first things first, it was brown. And he did like he always does with everything, repainted it black, which is, I think, kind of cool. And I think the Capri looks good in black. The other thing he told me all the time, the reason he got rid of that car was that he spent more time going backwards than forward because they were extremely tail happy cars and it just couldn't get the weight down, rear wheel drive, all that kind of stuff. But it was, it was the, 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 the British equivalent to the five liter, to a Mustang. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at it, long nose, very similar uh, face and it was very short uh, overhang. Of course, it was a hatch or well, let me rephrase that. Lift back. The later ones were hatches. The early ones were notchbacks. They were fun little cars. So on top of that, I recently reviewed Rust Valley Restorers, which is on Netflix, their third season. The last car they do in their build, so big spoiler alert here, they take a Sunbeam Alpine convertible out of their yard and decide they're going to you know, do it up and hot rod it and all this kind of thing. And the owner, Mike Hall, he decides that the, the four-cylinder engine that's in the Sunbeam just isn't enough and he swaps in a V6 2.8 Capri motor that they pulled out of the yard as well. And I thought that was an interesting mashup between two British cars, you know, and, and ones that people don't even really think of. But I never thought like, oh, a hot rod motor for an, a Sunbeam would be a Capri engine, right? So there's things like that, that that I think often get overlooked in this, you know, British car world. I'm shocked there's any Sunbeams left. 
That's true. I, I, seriously, I mean, there can't be many. Talk about a soluble car. Eric and I have a friend who uh, passed away in the 90s, but he worked for a Chrysler for 40 plus years. His company car was a, was a first gen Tiger. Beautiful car. He used to autocross a, uh, an Alpine. The green car was a, was a four-cylinder. You know, they, I, I drove that Tiger, and, you know, they say it's the poor man's Cobra, and it's, it is. It, it makes all the right noises. It has all the very mechanical feel to it. And, uh, and yeah, I could see those cars going backwards a lot. Remember, though, that a Tiger had an American V8. Yeah. So that made it reliable, right? <laughs> it made it absolutely dangerous. <laughs> it made it spin faster. It gave it a better pendulum effect. I can tell you a little story about how treacherous they can be. Sure. So I've owned a few of these things, one of which was an Austin Healey Frog Eye Sprite. Oh, God. A 59. <laughs> so Steve and I actually drove it a little bit. Well, the car had Lucas Electrics, or what passed for an electrical system, which was essentially a bundle of wires wrapped in a bit of flammable cloth yeah. with resistors in the middle. Yeah. So what, what you've essentially got is an electric fire that powers your gauges on wheels. Yeah. So the car routinely would just quit working uh, and then it would start working again. And if it rained, it would stop. And if it got dry, it would go. So I got a little bit tired of this, you know, and, and of course, this is a car that has a piece of clothesline for a door handle. You know what I mean? High tech. So to get the dash out was four screws. It fell in your lap and there were 12 wires. It's not a big challenge. I said, I'm going to have a go at this. So I go down the old local radio shack and I buy bundles of wire and little connectors and a little crimp on connectors and a little crimping tool that you buy were infinitely better than the pieces that were on the car from the factory. And I could take away the flammable coating. So I'm all about this. I've got non-flammable coated wire. This is going to be an improvement. So I start working on the car and start replacing wires. And so I got a couple of three of them done and it's time to drive to make sure everything's all right. So I lived in Frederick, Maryland at the time, not, not too far from where you guys are now. And we were in an apartment. So I drive through the apartment complex and as I'm driving, it was very cold and I've got the top up. And of course, to get the top off on Austin Heaties, it's probably about a two day job for a single man. And, you know, somebody told me, he said, I'm never going to drive a car where you have to get the windows out of the trunk. <laughs> Which is very true, but there wasn't a trunk either. So they slid down the back of the car and they were made of metal frames where they shorted out all the wires that you were working with, yeah? So I've got the roof on, windows up, and I'm driving this little bitty car, and I'm like... Yeah. And there is this smell, you know? And I'm thinking, oh, no. I've got a wire going, you know? Well, within seconds, this car completely fills with smoke to the point I can't see out. And it's this acrid, nasty, acidic smoke. And I'm starting to cough and barf and snot and tear and cry. And I'm trying to drive this little car. So I'm like, I've had enough of this. So before I get gassed, I reach over, grab my bit of uh, clothesline, pull it down in order to open the door to get the smoke out. Well, I lean over and typically the seatbelts in cars of that vintage are, well, absent really. 
And so I tumbled out of the motor. Right? So the car's doing about 30 miles an hour, and I'm on the road. Yeah, so the car's on the road. We're just not coincident. So the car is going down the road completely on its own, smoke pouring out the windows. I'm rolling and writhing in the middle of the road, snot ass and camel fur and all <laughs> And I finally get to cough and clear my eyes enough to watch my Austin Healy steadily work its way up the street. And it's, it's driving superbly. Probably the best it ever ran without me in it. <laughs> eventually, the car sort of goes to a halt and it hits the curb and bounces up on the curb. So I'm like, all right, I got this. So I get back up on my feet. And by this time, the acrid stench and the tearing has begun to subside. And so I'm like, okay, no problem. So I nonchalantly walk up the street to catch my car up. Meanwhile, there's two teenage girls coming the other way who are absolutely in freaking tears watching this English guy roll around on the ground, watching his pilotless car drive its way. <laughs> that was the last bloody time. And what had happened was indeed, I got a, a short and it set fire to the cloth covering for the wiring bundle. Now, I get to the car. The smoke is dissipated. The car has stopped. It's stalled on the side of the road. I get in it, pull the starter, starts right up and I drive it on. And there you have it. I have a question before we go into our next segment. Is there a best British brand? The best one is somebody else's. <laughs> we'll forget about the 80s to 90s because that's just a period of British car history we don't want to talk about. But let's say previous to that, you know, in the vintage era, is there a, a best and a worst? Believe it or not, the worst ones that I've experienced certainly were British Fords. The Ford Dagenham, we used to call them, they were made in Dagenham. Dagenham, Dustbins. And they were called, yep. as Steve just said, Dagenham Dustbins, which you would call a Detroit trash can. Uh, uh. Some of the worst made, electrically challenged, oh. stylistic, uh, uh, uh. In fact, if you yeah. were here right now, I could show you one. So, Brett, a guy works on, on my focus sometimes, has a 1959 Ford Anglia in the back of his shop at the moment. Whoa. Drag race yeah. car. There are people trying to destroy that car. Uh, it's just it's an abomination. They were terrible. They were they rusted. They, they had all of the power of a ruptured rabbit. They were diabolical things. <laughs> so I would say that for here in the U.S., for most Americans that have never been to the U.K., Rolls-Royce is definitely up there, and especially if you go back to the commercials of the Great Coupon, you know, and that was like, Rolls-Royce has always had that name synonymous with elegance and classiness. I, I'm not saying it's the best, but I know for name-wise, it's one of the top for renown. I worked for had a Bentley Turbo R, and, you know, from a plush and posh standpoint, you're damn right, that car was amazing. You know, four people in it, and it still smoked the tires. Not that I would know. But I do want to I do want to vote not necessarily the best brand, but the best car by far is a British car, and it's the best car in the world is an E-Type Jag. I think there's no competition. That car is the sexiest, most oh. wonderful car you can get. Except Matt's thousand dollars a year becomes ten thousand dollars a month. But the E-Type, even today, that and the Lamborghini Miro have not aged a, a second from the day they were penned. Absolutely. I agree to that. Yeah. There's a wonderful example, actually, 
of a British car that combines coach work, it combines upholstery, a super smooth engine, one of the best English gearboxes ever built with styling and comfort. And that's a Jaguar Mark 10. That's one of the pinnacles of British car manufacturing right there. Those are big cars too, if I recall. Relatively. Yeah. Certainly by British standards, yeah. And, and I think most people in the U.S. have no idea what those cars are. And I will post a picture of one with the no, show but, notes. But most people don't. They think Jaguar, they think E-Type. And then they yeah. think the XJ, you know, the XJ6, whatever that body was, the XJ sedans right. that were, they produced basically the same sedan for 20 years. Yeah. No, the, uh, the Mark II, Mark X, Mark VIII series, you won't see many Mark VIII anymore, but these were the epitome of the British businessman's car. Yeah. yeah. I think I would still say the, you know, on the rough end was the Dagenham dustbins. On the good end, as long as you paid attention, Jaguar still is probably within affordability ranges, the best of the British cars. See, Al, that's, that's a good sign. But you know what the ideal British car is, though, right? What's that? Okay, not a super version, but the Hillman Imp, and I'll tell you why. That one will absolutely save your life, right? Now, think about it, gentlemen. There's not a woman in the world who's going to be impressed by that thing, so you ain't got to worry about being accused of a womanizer, have you? No, your wife's happy. It will cost you a bloody fortune to maintain it, which means you can't spend money on wine, women, and song. You're in there. <laughs> it is physically impossible, unless you're in a mall parking lot, to exceed the speed limit. No way are you going to get a ticket. And if you break down on the side of the road, you'll have 50 people go alongside you, stop, get out, and go, oh, can I help you with that cute little car? You're in, <laughs> Mike Flynn, mate. That is the best British car ever built. Well, on that note, I think Brad's going to kick off our second segment here. So go ahead, Brad. Now that we've all shared some stories, it's time to play a few rounds of Break Fix Snooker in the form of What Should I Buy? British Cars Edition. Now, fair warning, if this broadcast stops short, it's 100% the fault of Lucas Electronics. But by all means, keep calm and carry on. Wait, let's get the language straight. It's snooker. Chesant and Jaguar. All right, Jaguar. start there. All right, folks, the rules are simple. It is a bucket list item for any true petrol head, myself included, to have owned a British car. Therefore, in keeping with our mythical three-car garage system, which you might recall from previous episodes, I challenge all of you to fill my garage with a vintage a modern being that of the 2000s and newer and your personal favorite british car who wants to go first who wants to fill my garage uh i'll go first if, if nobody else wants to all right set the stage brad all right so since i am the british car aficionado of the group here having never owned one i've still got those boyhood dreams i don't get you know bogged down by reality of actually owning a british car so for the vintage one, I'm going to go with the Jensen Interceptor, specifically the one from the, the most recent Fast and Furious movie, whatever that one was. Of course, over. because it's powered by a Chevy V8. So yeah, of course. Yeah, it's powered by a Chevy V8. <laughs> oh, they were Chrysler's. The next one for the 2000s plus, which is also one of my personal favorites, is the Bentley Brooklyn's, like a 2010. I love a huge, giant Grand Touring Coupe, and that car is just amazing. And then for my all-time favorite British car. The 1973 Aston Martin Lagonda. No. 
No, no, no. The TBR Tuscan Speed Six. Ah, very nice choice. Ever since the movie Swordfish, that's been my my favorite British car. I thought you said that'd be new in two thousand. The Brooklyn's so, is two thousand eight. Yeah, so your three your three criteria are vintage, modern, being anything new, and then your personal favorite British oh, car. It doesn't matter what year it is. All right, we can do that. So those are your three. So who's up next? All right, so you all know my favorite British car, right? So we can start there regardless of years, definitely an E-Type, right? So we start with the E-Type, we'll put that out there. Vintage, see, I'm a mini guy, and there's lots of really cool vintage minis. But if I'm going vintage, I'd probably go like, you know, James Bond car, right? It's got to be the DB9, DB8, you know, the DB thing, just because of the image of it. And modern day... Honestly, now I am going to stick with my affinity. A souped-up JCW 2018-2019 is one hell of a car. So I put that in there too. Nice. All right. So I'd say for modern, and I couldn't tell because I don't know particular models of various ones, but a couple of the newer Aston Martins, I really like the body lines to them. I think they're really smooth-looking cars. So I'd say for the modern car, I'd hook you up with an Aston Martin. As for classic, I'm gonna throw the the Hillman M out there because I really like it. And I, I'd like I think you'd enjoy riding around in it. And then, <laughs> as for my favorite, I would say one of the older mini pickups because yeah, there are not many around, and yeah. you just be an eye turner as you're going down the street. Whether say it again, Dan, what was it? One of the old mini pickups. Oh, mini pickup. Nice. Yeah. I saw a new yeah. one. By I the got way. a story. I got a story there. If you, we'll let everybody finish and then if we've got some time, I'll yeah, tell you yeah. a story about mini van, minivans. So, mini anyway, van. go ahead. You, you guys go ahead. It's like the handy van yeah. and the moke. But anyway, moving on. Dan, anything else? Any runners up in there? Well, those are the three that I, I was throwing out there. So, I've got two runners up. My first runners up is the McLaren F1 because. Yeah. Yeah, why, why the hell not? Sure. My next one is not a four-wheel, but a two-wheel, a Triumph Speed Triple. Mm-hmm. Nice choice. I don't know that that fits in the minivan, though, but Steve will let us know if it does. <laughs> Maybe in pieces. I'm going to add in a little cherry on top. Only because, you know me, I'm being a motorcycle guy, I got to throw in a motorcycle as well since Brad did. I'm going to throw in one of the old, like, 70s model Triumphs, you know, set up. They're cool bikes to get around on, but I'm going to tell you, if it breaks, I will not help you work on it. They're a nightmare. Oh, like a Bonneville or one of those? Yeah. Yeah, those are so, good bikes. But I will say that's a little uh, carry on top for you to ride around. Now they've thrown down the gauntlet, right? So <laughs> they've, done cars, they've done bikes. I'm not a bike man, but I am an aeroplane man. And a Supermarine Spitfire is the sexiest thing ever. Uh, how about Matt? What do you think? What are your three? You're spending my money. What would you buy? For a classic? You know, what is seven? I kind of like the... Uh, Kind of like the XK140. That's good. Yeah. The E Type is beautiful, but the XK140, well, the 120 really, is the one that started all, all that craze. And um, you know, it, it's still a hell of an elegant car. Modern, and I don't know what year they stopped, but the Brooklyn's is the one that's turbocharged or not? I don't recall because I, I I like those cars. I like the you know the the Bentley Turbo R or whatever the most modern version of that was. No, the the Brooklyn's is a naturally aspirated. It's like six and three quarter. Six point seven five liter with uh, yeah. the horsepower rating was listed as adequate. Five fifty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the turbo's engine was rated as 
more than adequate. <laughs> Gotta love the advertising. And, 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 the, uh, and the pinnacle my, car for you, Matt? My, my all-time favorite is the uh, Lotus Elite. And I'm not talking about a new one. I'm talking about a 60 or 61, the car that won Le Mans for its class and the fuel efficiency because it got 30 miles to the gallon racing for 24 hours. And they're just cool cars that they almost make the, 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 the 7 look big. Yeah, we got to see one at the Barber Motorsport Museum last year while we were there. So that was pretty cool to see an elite in person, along with a lot of other Lotuses. So for our listeners that are into British cars, if you happen to be down in Birmingham, stop by Barber to check out a lot of British cars that they have on display there, along with a ton of motorcycles. But over to Porsche Al, or should I say Z-Man, what you got for me? So I think my vintage will be... An Austin Healy. So when I was younger, my uncle had one. He wasn't a handy guy. He should have never got that car. <laughs> you know, you, you buy a car with aspirations of, of doing and having all this work done. You're really not that guy. And so my class will be probably be the Triumph TR6. I, I know someone, I'm not going to mention his name on this, just for namesake, but he took that Triumph motor out took the front end transmission and dropped it into a deuce coupe. He put it into a, a Model T, right? Oh. Made, made a true deuce coupe out of it. You know, I'm just going to stick with the Jag F-Type. <laughs> I'm loving that car. It reminds me of... Baby Aston. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, then that, that's good because, John, that means you're up. So what cars would you put in my garage? <laughs> well, but sod all in your garage, but I... <laughs> well, you're, you already got too many in yours, so come on. <laughs> so if you said, John, here's the load of dosh, go buy your favorite cars sure. and give them to me, which is different. So vintage is, without doubt, a 1929 four and a half liter blown Bentley. Oh, yeah. That's one of just end-to-end the most gorgeous pieces of wheeled machinery ever built. Modern car. I would go, and for a variety of reasons, with an Aston Martin Rapide of all cars, mm-hmm. uh, of which very few were ever built, and very few are in, the, in America, but the majority of them are here. It is the only four-door Aston Martin, and it looks like a vantage and goes like a bat out of hell, and you can seat four people. See, see he's car. erased the Lagonda from his memory banks. That is... You mean <laughs> the predecessor? <laughs> The grandfather repeat that car behind Re- you. Repeat mate. that, John. Repeat that. On every junkyard in the world is what that thing is. <laughs> Don't make fun of my four-door DeLorean. <laughs> there is four-door. You're right. Um, so, favorite car, one that stole my heart many years ago. Each up's a very close second, however, is a brand spanking new with a big BMW engine. Morgan Plus 8 classic body. <laughs> I think that is absolutely the art typical, still hand built, still bit built solely in Britain, except for the engine and gearbox. British car to beat all British cars. Nope. But, but you mean the, the important bits that actually make it a car that aren't built in, in yeah. Britain? Well, <laughs> the first thing you do, you know, the first thing you do when you buy a Morgan, right? You take it apart and you shellac the entire frame so that it doesn't rust and attract termites. Yeah, actually, my one is um, Cuprinol dipped to stop the termites. That's exactly why they did that. So, yeah, you're right. The first thing you do is find a good woodworker 
they're phenomenal cars, um, amazing things to drive. You rarely see yourself coming the other way down the interstate. And there is many, many times that the person who's got to fight to get to your car the most is you to move all the people out of the way looking at it. Brilliant mower. Still hand-built. In fact, on mine, the uh, turn signal lights on top of the fenders are uh, mismatched. One on right's an inch further back than the one on the left because they were made by two different people. <laughs> and the fenders were made with, by guys with hammers on a wooden buck. And you want to talk about a lost art and talk about coach built. Nothing on that car is, it comes out of, a, out of a press, per se. Well, yeah. I guess it's time for me to reveal my picks. My list of cars to consider may surprise you. So I'm going to read off a few names here. Some real cherished British gems of the automotive world. Things like the Austin Metro, the Morris Marina, the Rover P6, the Triumph Stag, the Ford Mondeo. Just, just stop, stop. I mean, these are amazing vehicles. And then so I had to further my research and say, well, maybe I could have an Elva Courier or I could have a Lotus Eclat or something like that. But oh, yeah, no. that's really not my style. So the only yeah. car ever named after a venereal disease. I love it. <laughs> so I think for vintage, it would not surprise you that you cannot take the boys very far from the racetrack. And I would have a 64 to 68 Janetta G4R. Yeah, nice. For modern car, I would have a Noble M400. Now, it's a draw here for the quintessential British car that I would own. And it's a hard tie between two diametrically opposed vehicles. One being the Jaguar, or I can't even say it. Come ja on, come on. Jaguar <laughs> XJ220. And the other car that would be my most reasonable choice would be a Ford Sierra Cosworth. Yeah, which you call here a Mercure XR4TI. Yeah, terrible name. Uh, it's like bringing over the Accord and calling it a Sterling. But yeah, those would be my choices in my garage. Leave it to Ford to sell a car like that through dealerships where the average age was like 90. Yeah, right. <laughs> who, the hell, who the hell went to a Mercury dealer to buy a sports car? They went to buy the car for the freaking funeral home. While you guys were talking, I'm sitting here trying to figure out the differences between the X4 Ti and the Sierra Cosworth. Uh, it's badges. That's it. There was a, a Turbo Cosi Sierra in the UK. Yeah, the ones over there were twin-injected twin spark, too. They had a really interesting setup. They run brilliantly well for about 80 miles. That's all I need. Now, I will say there was one other car that I've always kind of been fascinated with, but I have a feeling it is terrible. And it really is only because I sort of secretly like the Ferrari Daytona, and that's the Rover SD1. It has a very similar shape to it, although it is a coupe. But I have a feeling that I would be utterly disappointed with that car. And so it did not make my list in any shape or form. Now, Eric, I'll tell you a car that's going to be very peculiar that you would not be disappointed with, that you would get out going, I'm glad I've driven that, but I'm never doing that again. And that is a modern Morgan three-wheeler with the SNS 115 engine in it. That car is completely and utterly ridiculous. It's only got one wheel and it's got the contact patch of your thumb yeah. and 110 horsepower direct drive. That car, you can turn the steering wheel, which fought in the gas and it will just spin around its front wheels all day long. 
It is a ridiculous car. And the other thing is, while it's extremely fast and there are a few cars that will keep up with it, it will never miss a bump because it's got a wheel in every lane. <laughs> uh, there was a, a fellow who showed up at a car show. They brought a 1929 Morgan and a brand new 2016 Morgan. And the only way you could tell the difference is if you look closely at the gauges. I mean, it's the same car. Yeah. Now, I thought it was interesting. The same guy. <laughs> so I thought it was interesting that Al brought up Triumph, and you specifically said that's TR6, which is a way better car than, than any of the other Triumphs probably of that era. But, you know, we all fell victim to the TR7 here, which is a oh. very weirdly shaped car. Uh, we'll just call it a wedge to be nice. They wink too, remember, because when you turn one light on, the other one went up. But I will say, I did get a chance, even if it was for a short distance, to drive a car that was built in Blackpool. I got a chance to drive a TVR Tasman 280i mm. with the, you know, the Cortina motor and all that fun stuff. I won't say it was anything to write home about, but it was kind of interesting to see how, as you know, John always says, it was cobbled together because you know the rear lights were from a Mercedes and some parts were from a Ford, and it was all this mismatch of things. But at the end of the day, eh, at least I checked the box and said I drove a British sports car. You know, there are three things that killed the British car industry. Because there is only one car solely built in Britain, and that's a Morgan. So there's a lot of political answers to this, to this little question. But the three things, essentially, that killed the British car industry are the Jaguar XJS, the MG Midget, and the Triumph TR7. Oh, God. The three biggest buckets of bolts ever built on this planet. Now then, having said that, I earned my way through college as a British car mechanic, I oh. love those cars. <laughs> <laughs> but Steve, you had a story you wanted to share. We got a couple of minutes left if people want to hang out. Yeah, it was. It was remind me of the uh, mini pickup. So when I, when I first was an apprentice in England, um, going back was learning my trade as an electrician and in electronics. We used to you know get lunch hours and stuff. And a mate of mine used to have a car and he would take me home so I get something to eat and go take take me back again. And it was a minivan, not a mini pickup, but a minivan. A minivan is the same size of a regular mini, except it's straight back. There's two windows at the back that look like portholes from the bottom of a, a beer bottle. And it was a mini. Was we call least. those opera windows here. We don't even call them operable windows. Yeah, yeah. So, and it leaked. So, you know, as all British cars do, and, and particularly exhaust. So uh, the story is that one day, you know, I, I go home, so I get something to eat and I'm, I'm rushing because it's only an hour. So I get back in, the, in this van and he starts the van and we, the van goes down the road and I get a whiff of the exhaust and throw up straight from one side of this van to the other for about five minutes before he stopped, pulled over, threw me out, drove off. <laughs> <laughs> That, that was the story. That's all there was to it. In this story at all. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> so yeah. our dad, another British car story. Our dad, yeah, had something called a Riley Elf. Yeah. Oh, right. It's like a Reliant yeah, Robin. Voice. Right. Uh, no, no, no. It's all four wheel. Yeah, the Reliant Robin story is completely different. This one had all, a wheel on every corner. Um, well, sort of. So this particular, if you've ever seen an Austin 1100, which is the large family sedan version of the Mini, because it's almost nine feet long. So that motor, dad went out and bought for 25 quid, and I remember it well. 
it's so it looked like an Austin 1100, but it's got a Wolseley front grille, which is kind of kidney shaped. Yeah. So dad was very proud of it. This was the upscale car, yeah? So he brought it home, set it outside our house in Woolyook, let it sit there for a couple of weeks. He's going to go out and tax it and you know, get it all registered and everything. Gets in this car, turns the key, puts it in the gear. Now remember what kind of car this is. Front wheel drive, front subframe. Puts it in gear, lets his foot off the clutch, him, the engine gearbox go that way, and the rest of the car goes bang and sits in the middle of the street. He's oh. driving up the street, scraping, and without a word of a lie, scraping sparks, holding the steering wheel with an engine, two wheels, and, a, and the A-pillars. The rest of the car's sitting on the driveway behind him. So, you know, <laughs> we, we now buy stickers, you know, parts falling off this car of the finest British manufacturer. You know, it's absolutely <laughs> terrible thing. And on that note, Brad, what do you think? Is it time to end? Yeah, I think we're good. Cheers. I think it's time to end. I, I cannot thank you all enough for coming on. I think this was fun. And so with that, Brad? See you all later. Cheerio. Cheers, mates. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. That's all. All right, governor. <laughs> oh, jeez. The story of a patron of the arts His name was Joseph Lucas And he made electric parts He put them into jaguars and TRs And golfing carts But his parts don't work no Speaking sacrilegiously, remember that we're victims of the Lucas Company. The title parts of darkness come from piss poor quality, cause his parts don't work no more. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey listeners, Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read from GTM? Great, so do we, and we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no annual fee organization, but we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit, and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help.